Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. Well, another week has gone by in this coronavirus epidemic, pandemic uh, time frame, and I have to say, I have been looking for ways to have fun thinking about and learning about birds without going anywhere. I am not probably not as good as some birders are about not going out. I still am getting out to more remote areas in the community, uh, driving a little ways to go birding, but certainly not racing all over the place like I normally would, and really trying to stay away from places where I would have trouble staying socially distant from others. But uh, I have to say I've been spending more time at home than usual, without a doubt. And for any of you who know me, that is not my norm. I am uh, pretty much uh, have ants in my pants when it gets to... Uh, sitting in one place. I pretty much do best when I'm moving around and really busy. So I've been doing some things that I sometimes do, but maybe doing more now. I've been playing LarkWire more. LarkWire is uh, an app or a website that you can uh, pay us a modest fee just get onto and it has really good learning tools for bird songs and here we are spring migration the new birds are showing up they're singing there's lots of bird song going on so it's a great tool to play with have fun and learn about that i spent a little time last night really anguishing over struggling to identify hermit warbler from townsend's warbler from black-throated gray warbler they are all very similar and gosh it's not easy but anyway uh, i had fun with that and i'm reviewing some of my other songs that's a fun tool to play with i've also been working my way through the uh, the Cornell online uh, bird biology course and the textbook that they have is just terrific it's a little pricey but really a top resource been studying my eBird more and different things like that. So uh, getting some vicarious birding in. Uh, Blair Burnson, who's a, a friend and fellow blogger, was a guest on an earlier episode, has been putting up a Facebook post about uh, uh, favorite birds that he remembers from his 50 birds in 50 states and 50 days or something like that uh, project that he's doing. Uh, and I've been enjoying reading uh, about his uh, his Facebook posts from that. That's been fun. Uh, but overall, pretty much biding my time and hoping this thing passes and trying to stay safe. Uh, but today, I sat down and had a guest for the Bird Banner podcast. So I'm excited. Dave Irons is my guest today. Uh, Dave is a top uh, ABA birder. He's been uh, a... Uh, compiler for North American birds. He's an eBird reviewer. He's just everybody hears of or knows Dave knows. He's just a super smart guy who's passionate about birds and really knowledgeable. He also wrote a recent book, just wrote a book about the birds of Oregon. Uh, and I learned about that during the episode. Stay tuned. You can hear about that. It's a, it's a nice resource for especially for beginning to intermediate birders, maybe not a, a bird finding guide for for uh, those of us listers and chasers, uh, but a great resource for people who are maybe new to birding in Oregon or that sort of thing. So I think that's that was fun to hear about. Uh, so uh, check out that. I think you'll enjoy it. But Dave agreed to be my guest today and came on and we had a great episode. So I hope you enjoy the Bird Banner podcast, episode number 58 with Dave Irons. Dave, welcome to the Bird Banner podcast. Thanks for being on with me today. Well, thanks for the invitation. I look forward to a nice discussion. Yeah, it should be fun. Uh, Dave, I met you at the WASP meeting last year, and uh, you were uh, obviously married to Shanine, who I had met on a pelagic trip. I took that, that searcher five-day pelagic out of San Diego, 
uh, and Shunning was one of the uh, experts on the trip of the leaders. And I just was so impressed that she's such a nice person and so doggone good in terms of birding uh, that I had her on for a guest on episode number 17 a long time ago. And I said, oh, this Dave, he sounds pretty sharp too. I should get him on sometime. So thanks for being on with me. That's really nice. I could tell you that I learned everything I know from her, but um, actually, I started a little. I started birding long before she did, as a as a young kid. Yeah, I, one of the impressive things about Shanine was that she didn't have that started as a seven year old thing that a lot of top birders. I mean, if you talk to a lot of the really top birders, a lot of them started in childhood or at least in the early teen years, and that's a learning time that is hard to replace. And yet Shanine didn't start till she was a young adult and just, whoo, is she good? Wow. Birding is like learning a language. And, and the sooner you get started, uh, obviously there's huge advantages there. The best, most of the best birders I know started when they were really young kids, had parents or grandparents or somebody that inspired them to look at birds from a very young age. And, and there's, it's like anything you pick, kids pick up skills like that very quickly. Uh, much better than adults do in most cases. I think you're right. It sounds like you started at a really young age. Tell me your early birding story and sort of how your birding career progressed. Well, uh, my start was very interesting. Uh, my parents um, joined the South Bend Audubon Society in Indiana when I was, I think, five years old. And that in itself was kind of an interesting start. My dad was a fanatic golfer um, and decided to go with some friends up to Southern Michigan somewhere to play golf one day. And they were going to play 18 holes. And they decided after the first 18 that they would go another 18 holes. And he didn't bother to call my mother and let her know that um, that was happening. So she expected him to be back at about one o'clock in the afternoon. And he didn't roll in until about five or six, I guess it was. And she had been badgering him to join the local Audubon Society. And he was not really keen on that idea. So as her revenge, she basically called up the local membership chairman to the Audubon Society, joined, asked if there was anything she could volunteer to do. They said they were looking for a newsletter editor, and she had some background in doing that sort of thing. And so she volunteered to do that. And they had a weekend potluck. It was either Saturday or Sunday afternoons at the local sanctuary where you brought, they just set up charcoal grills and you cooked out meat and people brought a side dish and that was just kind of their, their weekly thing. And so mm -hmm. my dad rolled in at whatever time he got home and she told him he needed to take a shower and get cleaned up and that they were going out to this Audubon Society potluck. And, and that was the start of it. That'll teach you to play an extra 18. Yes, it will. <laughs> so your parents got into get into birding when you were just a little kid. And how did you take to that? Um, well, from a... From a young age, um, actually, once they got into it, both of them became, you know, very proficient and skilled birders in their own right. Um, we did a lot of Christmas counts when I was a little kid, and I always thought that was cool because there was kind of this competitive aspect and, you know, mm -hmm. trying to get the biggest number sorts of things. And then as I got a little older, we took family vacations to various places, and those were invariably involved camping and birding. Um, Probably the most significant of those was when I, the summer I was eight years old, we were still living in Indiana, and we took a family vacation for, I believe it's three weeks, uh, driving vacation, went 
through the southern tier states across New Mexico and ended up spending time at Madeira Canyon and Cape Creek Canyon, a bunch of places in Arizona, and then went, drove up the West Coast uh, through Oregon, where my mom fell in love with the state, and then back across northern tier states uh, home. And wow. I think we stayed in motels or some sort of lodging about two or three nights that entire trip. The rest of it was camping and you know cooking stuff over a Coleman stove and looking at lots of birds. Very nice. That's good. So uh, you got some wonderful travel experience as a kid. Were you a lister from the get-go? Because you had a pretty good list at the end of that trip, I um, bet. I had one of those life list books, and I that they, I don't know who used to publish it. It was kind of a green spiral-bound thing. It had listed all that. I still have mm-hmm. it, one somewhere that, of course, everything's the taxonomy is completely outdated now, but um, that I kept track of things on. And so I kept track of those sorts of things, but um, didn't really get too fanatical about it until I was about a senior in high school. And at that mm-hmm. point, I met other birders who were my same age, and that that was kind of the, the impetus for me to get a lot more serious than I had been. Uh, obviously, going doing things like that with people your own age is a lot more fun than going on field trips with a bunch of people who are your parents' age on an Audubon Society field trip. Yeah, and meeting people who would like interests was not as simple in those days. It wasn't like you joined the uh, you know Washington Young Birders Group or whatever on Facebook. No. <laughs> yeah, a little different in those days. Uh, so did you uh, did did you go on to higher education? Um, I I ended up going to uh, went to all three major universities in Oregon at some point in my life. I started out at Portland State. I played a lot of golf growing up, and mm-hmm. was actually pretty good at it. And so I, uh, I was invited to play on the golf team at Portland State University. So I did that for a year, but then I had some issues with a, my knee that required surgery that kind of screwed up my golf swing. And by that point, I was a lot more serious into birding too. So uh, birding was a lot less frustrating than golf. So <laughs> I kind of put that on the shelf. Then I transferred down to Oregon State, um, went to school there for about two and a half years, with um, not a whole lot of focus and any idea what I wanted to do and didn't complete a degree, but I did go back as adult in my early 40s when I was living down in Eugene uh, to the University of Oregon and completed a degree there. Cool. So uh, unlike the the travel you did when you were young with your parents, lately it's been stay at home. This this coronavirus of COVID-19 has really put a damper on chasing birds and big trips this spring. I know you and Shanine do a lot of festivals. Did you have to miss any festivals related to that that um, you plan to do? This, the, the typical events we do, we try to go to the Western Field Ornithologist meeting every year, and that was scheduled for... Um, August this year in Reno, Nevada, in mm-hmm. the board of WUFO, as we refer to it, decided fairly early on to, to postpone that and cancel it for this year just because they, they didn't want to get to a point where they were committed financially to a lot of hotel rooms and event space and then not use it. And have it I'm a lurking, lurking member of WFO too, so I get those emails. I saw um, that. Yes. We really enjoy their conferences every year. And then, um, you know, the primary thing we do every year is the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival, which is um, the valley is is like a second home to us at this point. And the people, the particularly the leaders and the, the volunteer festival staff down there are like family to us. And we we look forward to the socializing as much as we do to the birding at, at this point. 
And I bet you do. I love that. That was the first birding festival I ever really went to uh, several years ago. I've kind of, you know, somehow been averse to going to big birding things like that. I'm not at the level where I, uh, I'm going to be shoulder to shoulder with the top birders and somehow getting on a bus to go birding with a bunch of people didn't appeal to me, but boy, that was a wonderful festival. I loved it. Yeah. And uh, I, the coolest thing, I spent a month in the Lower Rio Grande Valley this winter. I went down for half of January and half of February and got one of the last flights home I felt comfortable taking after that yeah. and had a chance to talk with Mary Gustafson down there who is, uh, I think she has been in charge of the field trips for that uh, festival for years. Over uh, over the she, last um, probably 12, 13 years, she has been, all but a couple of years, she has been the uh, festival field trip chair. Um, mm -hmm. And a leap of faith on her part was the reason I ever got to go there to begin with. She had, when Shawnee and I first got together that next fall, she had already committed to going to the festival and, Mm -hmm. I don't know if she did a t she may have done a t-shirt for him that year. And so she went down as a keynote speaker and as a field, as a guide on the trips and Mary at the end of the festival said, you know, we're always looking to expand and kind of diversify guides and bring in new guides. You know, anybody you think that you might want to bring or, you know, or, and then asked her, if she's coming back next year. So I mean, so, well, I'd love to come back, but you know, I really feel bad not, not bringing Dave along. And, you know, Mary had never met me. And at that point, sure. <laughs> in life i had never been to the rio grande valley so i'd you know green jays and all the really easy stuff you get for all life birds yeah that great birds. so you know shawneen uh said you know look Mary, this guy's really sharp he'll do great he'll pick up on the local birds really fast and you know within a few days it'll be like it'll be like somebody that's lived there for six months and so Mary said, well, I'll bring him on as a guide under one condition. And that's you come down early, you know, three or four days early and you spend some time birding around, you know, so he gets familiar with all the common birds, kiskadees and green jays and sure. that sort of thing before you're out on a field trip. So we laughed and I said about how much fun it would be, you know, to be out there leading a field trip and, you know, getting all these just relatively common birds down there and, and doing fist pumps and yeah, hey, another lifer for the leader. You know, meanwhile the participants <laughs> are getting less less lifers than I am. Um, but we've continued that tradition. And one of the cool things that first year we had so much fun just traveling around and you know, kind of getting a lay of the land. And it's different every year depending on how much rain and you know water there is around and and the dates even even a few days difference in dates will make a difference on whether there's ducks around or whether there's not. So it gives you a good idea when you go to lead field trips, what places to make sure you hit and other places that might be kind of slow and to avoid. So we now every year when we go down, we always go down the as early as we possibly can, usually the Saturday before the festival starts on Wednesday and spend four days just poking around and seeing what's what's happening before uh, all the participants arrive. Such torture to have to spend an extra four days birding yes. the lower Rio Grande Valley in the winter. I mean, gosh, I just can't think of anything worse. Yep. Yeah. I, always <laughs> I always joke with people, My three of my favorite language uh, words in the English language are on the outside of the airport, and it's welcome to Harlingen. I see exactly. that. I know I'm about to have a good time. Yes, for sure. I stayed in McAllen, but both great towns. Yes, uh, Dave, you had you had mentioned that you've been really trying to hunker down during this uh, COVID nineteen time. Uh, you you uh, on an email you sent to me, you said you had some uh, 
wanted to talk a little bit about backyard birding and that sort of thing. Give us some advice of how to stay sane during this time. Well, I think it's like anything you just have to kind of, it is what you make of it. Um, my job, I, I work selling frozen food uh, directly to people's homes. So I'm considered essential service. So I get out five days a week work-wise and I'm out running around. Um, and I kind of feel an obligation in that sense to keep myself well and, and when I'm not working, really uh, you know, do the social distancing thing, stay at home. And as much as I'd like to even go out and poke around some of the local places, we really haven't left the house much at all. And so we focused, you know, thankfully it's, it's spring migration and there's new birds arriving in the neighborhood every day. So that's good. Um, and just being, if you pick almost any place on the map and just sit there long enough, interesting birds will pass through. And um, a couple examples of that, we're sitting here, I think it was the first or second weekend that we were sheltering in place and uh, just looking out the back window out into our yard to a water feature that Shawnee built earlier this winter. And she goes, oh, there's a sapsucker. And then about two seconds later, she says, it's a red nape, which is obviously <laughs> a really rare bird west of the Cascades and, sure, and same not a bird we ever expected to see in our backyard. So we got some photos of that when it was either the the next day or the day after that, um, we were again sitting out in the yard. We've, we've had days where we've sat out there with our binoculars for six, seven, eight hours at a time or keep a running eBird list as we're maybe doing projects in the yard, but mm -hmm. always with one eye looking up in the sky for flyover raptors, things like that. But um, two days later, Shawnee went inside to make us some breakfast and I'm sitting in the chair in the backyard and I see this bird come flying at an angle across the neighborhood and it was an acorn woodpecker. Wow. And that's a bird that we've only seen once within five miles of our house. There are, is a population of them out in the western end of our county, but uh, there's none locally. And unfortunately, Shawnee was had her hands in the middle of some chicken or something. She was putting in eggs and didn't get out the door quite soon enough to see it. So, so you've got one uh, one on the yard list on her. That's good. I have, I have to have, have something call, to hold over her. I have what we call a blocker, but she has a couple of those on me. She because she's here all the time. Yeah, She's had white she pelican, which I expect oh. I'll get again someday. We get flocks of those pass over. Yeah, they the can, you can see those a long ways off. up in the Right. Air. But she had a pileated woodpecker, and there's really, there's no suitable habitat really locally in our neighborhood for those. So I don't know what it was doing in the neighborhood, about as likely as the, the acorn woodpecker, I would say. So we each have a woodpecker that the other one probably will never get, but you never know. <laughs> Need to live 50 more years till one of the trees gets really big and maybe yeah. have a chance. <laughs> so it, it's, it, but it's really, I think the, the thing that's been most fun about it is, is you really come to know the, the birds in your local yard, in your yard and local neighborhood as individuals. Um, and there's funny, you know, some have unique little vocalizations. We have one lesser, uh, lesser goldfinch that has, snippets of white-breasted nuthatch which is hard from our yard and it also throws in downy woodpecker regularly and the, the one that's most fun is it does a little pedic call of a western tanager and so you hear you know western tanager call it in february it's like that's a little out of season um and then has, we have a, a little northern mockingbird blood in it somewhere yeah <laughs> oh the lesser goldfinches are unbelievable mimics and they, they just they do all their kind of scratchy little you know, garbled calls, but 
in the midst of that, there's little snippets of other songs and, and call notes of other birds. I mean, it does flicker and I mean, you have to sit there and listen. It's about six species that you can identify pretty easily. And then we have a junco. We, a junco we were jokingly referred to as the farting junco because it does this little kind of a raspberry sound at the end of its song that I've never heard a junco do anything like quite like it. <laughs> and it's only the one individual bird that, so you, you know it's in the yard when you hear that. Probably got a nickname for him or her. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Dave, uh, have, do you think that birds like uh, lesser goldfinch that seem to make the sounds of a, do you think they're really mimics or do you think they just happen to have some sounds that sound like another bird? I, I'm not I, sure I think about they that. They definitely, well, songbirds learn all of their songs. So it's not the, um, you know, the most of the songbirds like warblers, sparrows, things like that, they learn their songs. They're not instinctive like a flycatcher. You know, will a flycatcher does a Fitzbue? They all do Fitzbue. They don't learn that from others. They, right. they come out of the egg with that programmed in. But other songbirds basically have to, they learn songs and their vocalizations from other birds within their population. Most birds just imprint on their parents, learn their parents' songs and vocalizations and, and will repeat those. But if you get into birds like um, a lot of the warblers, have local dialects. So if you go up mm -hmm. and down the the Cascades, for instance, in our neck of the woods, and you go from one end of the range to the other of birds like uh, black or gray warbler or hermit warbler or Townsend's warbler, from one location <laughs> to the next, there'll be slight variations in the patterns of the songs. I spent some time uh, last night, interestingly, on Lockwire with those three birds up trying to think, and I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> the one Townsend's can sound just like one Hermit can sound almost like, I mean, they can really a lot of overlap in the patterns and quality. Right. It's, it's not easy to tell those guys apart. Well, and then you consider that Hermit and Townsend's hybridized too. And so they're, and probably have been doing that for millennia. So you have probably some hardwired internal tendencies maybe to, to, yeah. to tend to one song or another, if you have, ancestry of the other species so yeah very cool dave you mentioned that you've uh, been fascinated or have done some i don't know research is the right word but have studied and become really intimate with some of the uh uh migratory patterns of some birds T tell me about that and 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 what got you into that and what what fascinates you about it well i mean i think it's always part of it's just the anticipation um, of spring migration, you want to know when to expect things to show up and you can start getting excited about the 20th of April that all of a sudden, you know, tanagers and black-headed grosbeaks and the first warbling vireos are, are likely to show up in the neighborhood any day. Um, when I was still, let's see, my early 20s, I guess, I moved to, from Portland down to Eugene and I, at the time I lived in, a part, uh, in an apartment at the base of Skinner Butte, which is probably the best local migrant spring migrant trap in, in Eugene. It's a little small old volcanic butte right in the middle of downtown Eugene. Um, and it was just, a, you know, probably a quarter mile walk up the hill from, from our front door. And I was living with Steve Heinel, who now lives up in uh, Anchorage, Alaska and David Fix, who was one of my earliest birding mentors who lives in Arcata, California. And we would each year sit down and, and predict um, what day we would find 
X, species X, you know, okay. And we'd make a, a kind of a chart and each of us would put in our predictions. And I think we even created some sort of point system to keep track of whose was of most accurate. And, and as it went, as I recall, the further past your predicted data got, I mean, it was, there was, it was punitive to, to predict things way too early and miss it by four or five days because you got a, a big deduction of points. So it became kind of a game. And then it also became a game to find things early. And, sure. And, you know, we, I remember one day I got up and, and uh, one of the guys, I can't remember, Steve or David, already gotten up before I did and gone up the butte before I even got out of bed. And I got up and was having coffee. And I, think, yeah. and I said, you know, looked at the calendar, thought about what day it was and thought, you know, today would be a good day to get, you know, McGillivray's warbler out of shelf today. And whoever it was said, yeah, I had one this morning. They don't even up to you. Yeah, Take that yeah. off. So um, I, I laugh. I lived in Puyallup for several years, just a little bit east of Tacoma here where I live now. And we had a lot of, uh, you know, relatively mature, you know, 40, 50, 60 year old uh, Doug Furs in the, in the, neighborhood. And so we had a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Western tanagers uh, nested nearby. And every year on the 7th of May, they showed up. On a rare year, it would be the 6th, and on a rare year, it would be the 8th, but they showed up the 7th. It was just like, just it didn't matter what the weather was like, just the 7th, just like that. It's just well, crazy. You know, birds, I mean, they look at, you know, they, they are dependent to some degree on certain trees and uh, plants flowering out, and, you know, enough leaves in the deciduous trees for insect patches and, you know, grubs to occur. Um, if they get there too early, they're... Um, they're likely to be really challenged to find food. So, and you know, it's over time. It's interesting to look at things from you know as as the climate changes and you know one year to the next. You know, weather pattern changes, and you have a particularly dry, warm year or a particularly wet, cool year. You know, watching how birds one the the patterns in which they show up, but then also watching to see what birds linger in the lowlands. When I lived in Eugene, we would get uh, Nashville warblers. Uh, in pretty good numbers in the in the spring, and they would show up typically between about the fifteenth and twentieth of April, and and very quickly start kind of dispersing out of the lowlands. And they pretty common breeders up at mid slope at about two thousand to four thousand feet of elevation. But there were a couple of years where it was really cold, really wet, and snow you know clear down to like twenty five hundred feet up in the mountains, and and obviously it would have been a death sentence for them to go up there. And in that particular year, the, the national war was really lingered in the valley a lot longer than they normally do. Nice observation. Great. Uh, so uh, you, I, I laugh, I'm going to tell a, a joke of myself. You, uh, you sent a, uh, an email to me that said you uh, studied the phenology uh, of uh, migration. Uh, and I'm thinking, phrenology? How, do the, how, does that, how do the bird skulls have to do with migrations? I uh, I, I got a good laugh when you replied to me and said, no, not phrenology, phenology. So yeah. can you describe phenology for me? Just define what does it's that just word basically even mean? the study of, of cyclical and uh, predict somewhat predictable events that occur on a, on a temporal scale that repeats itself over time. And just looking oh, okay. at, you know, capturing that data and, and looking at, you know, mean arrival dates and departure dates and, and uh, what's the earliest record for this bird or what's the latest seasonal arrival for that bird and and just 
paying attention to those sorts of things. Um, the probably the most interesting uh, phonology that I know of is uh, the work that Henry David Thoreau did at Walden Pond, and he kept track for for the time that he lived there of the flowering dates of all these native local plants. Oh. And we can go back and compare his data to data now. And I read, I can't remember, it was Discover or Science Magazine. They did a big article several years ago talking about the fact that on average, these plants are flowering 11 days earlier than they did in Thoreau's time. So oh my goodness, uh, we can definitely see where, and, and that the timing of those things obviously is very important to birds. I mean, Sure. Look at Ruby uh, Rufus hummingbirds here. They they are really they seem to always show up about the time that the red flowering current flowers. So if mm-hmm. you start seeing a you know disconnect between you know when the those those blossoms are available for the hummingbird to nectar on, um, if that happened before the birds even get here and you know, all the pe- all the flowers fell off before they arrived, that would be uh, detrimental, mm-hmm. obviously, to Rufus hummingbirds. Yes, I had read about whether uh, how. F- is the client can birds evolve to change the timing of their migration as fast as the climate can change? And I think the consensus was no way, no how. But yeah, I think I think from one season to you know on small scale, you know from you know seasonal weather impacts. I mean, I think there's a response to to some of that. But um, you know, you look at probably the the scariest um, scariest example of. Uh, of phonologies not matching up is the the uh, the egg laying of horseshoe crabs in Delaware Bay, and mm. the arrival of the Atlantic population of red knots. That sure, uh, you know the red knots are have not really changed their migratory schedule, but the 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 eggs, you know, if, the, if they lay less eggs or don't lay them at the right time, uh, these birds, which have essentially lost half their body weight flying from uh, down in Argentina up to up to the mid-Atlantic coast, uh, there's nothing for them to feed on and they will never make it to the Arctic and, and not have the, the strength to, to reproduce. So Breed successfully. Yeah. Red knots are amazing both because of that incredible migration they take and also because of how, I mean, they are you know, maybe the best studied migratory shorebird. I, I, there may be something that's been studied as much, but they certainly have been the East Coast population has been studied very, yeah. very extensively. So, Dave, you also mentioned you're you're very interested in molt. Molt is a, a, a dear topic to me, primarily because my really good birding friend Ken Brown, who he was my first guest on the Bird Banner Podcast episode two, uh, Ken taught the advanced birding class in. in for Tom Audubon for many years. And uh, he always tried to, especially the last few years he taught the class, have two or three classes on molt uh, and bring up the modified Humphrey Parks uh, system and all these different things. And you'd see about half of the class, the eyes would glaze over and the heads would nod and they'd just go, and about half the class, oh, this is really cool. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So molt is one of those topics that birders either love or don't love. Uh, tell me how, how you got to be really interested in molt and maybe some of the things you've learned that have helped you as a birder and just fascinated you. Well, I mean, the thing I always find most interesting about molt is that it's physiologically, other than uh, reproduction, is, is the most strenuous thing that birds do. And that they, you know, each year uh, during a period of time will replace essentially all of their feathers all at once uh, in what's called a pre-basic molt that occurs in the fall, uh, either 
in the on the breeding grounds or once they reach their wintering grounds after migrating. Uh, and so that's, but the average birder doesn't really, I think a lot of birds don't even understand that that happens on that level. They just kind of take it for granted. These birds grow their feathers and then they, we always see them. They always have feathers. Um, you, know, you might go to the local duck pond and notice that um, all the, all the mallards don't have wings in the middle of July and August because they're replacing all their flight feathers all at once. And those are big, heavy, durable feathers that take a lot more to reproduce. Um, but the rest, you know, the, the head is always feathered and the body's always feathered. And it's not like you, well, it's Daffy Duck when he gets all of his feathers blown off in the cartoons. Um, <laughs> so it, that in and of itself is fascinating. Just the, the amount of energy it must take to do that and how important a food supply is and, and uh, to that process. And obviously, you know, stable food supply has caused some birds to evolve really interesting molt strategies. A lot of Western birds, songbirds, actually do are what's called molt migrants, where they leave their summering grounds and migrate down to the desert southwest in July and August. And then they stop there for the monsoon season, where there's this big influx of precipitation. And it's like a second spring in terms of insect patches and and flowers mm -hmm. uh, blooming and things like that. And they go down there to, to molt before continuing on to wherever their wintering grounds are much further south. Um, there's also aspects of identification where molt is really critical. Um, probably foremost is shorebirds. I always tell people before you identify a shorebird and gulls for that matter, um, the first thing you have to do is determine what age they are. And the only way you could do that is looking at for clues in the coloration of their feathers, uh, the condition of and uh, pattern of their flight feathers, which uh, are the most, the easiest feathers to see because of the big. Um, so you can identify an age and then you can properly identify the bird. Uh, if you're just trying to identify a shorebird and you don't know what age it is, you're likely to uh, be on a little bit of a fool's errand and make some real mistakes. Uh, that, that are pretty obvious to somebody that looks at the bird and goes, oh, that's a juvenile, it's not an adult. Uh, a lot of people assume that juvenile plumages in shorebirds, which are pretty bright, are adult plumages. Uh, but here on the West Coast, once you get past about the end of July, essentially every shorebird migrant sandpiper you see is a juvenile. There's almost no adults still hanging around in, in some species. So that is important. an amazing thing about the migration of shorebirds that somehow there's there's it's so innate that the the parents uh, you know uh, lay the eggs hatch the young and these birds are born with feathers and walking around and shortly after they're born the adults take off and somehow yeah. the young know how to get south it's just amazing that you know we'll see all western sandpipers all western you know, all adults all adults all adults and then they dwindle off and there's only a little bit of a crossover in migration between when it's all adults and when it's all juveniles. Yeah. Adult, adult. it's definitely child abandonment with, with shorebirds there. It's and you, once you understand that and realize you think about all these birds that are literally weeks old that now are expected, you know, Western sandpipers migrate from a you know, the copper river Delta in Alaska all the way down to, you know, Tierra del Fuego. In some cases, and it's like these birds, <laughs> yeah. they have to find, they're finding their way on their own. So there's definitely a lot of hardwiring there. Another interesting story about, about molt that I think we talked to, talked a little bit about before we got started was 
I'm an eBird, a local eBird reviewer, and recently uh, one of our local users submitted a report of a red nape slash yellow-bellied sapsucker here in our home county just outside of Portland. Either one of those species would be unusual for the area. And I started looking at the photo, and the bird had a you know big red patch on its nape, which would make you think, oh, it's a red nape sapsucker. But then as I looked at it closer, it's like, this bird just doesn't look quite right. It kind of seems brown and kind of dingy. And I started looking at the bird more closely and realized that it had a lot of retained juvenile brownish, golden brownish feathering. Um, and there's different molt strategies with uh, yellow-bellied and red nape sapsuckers. Red nape sapsuckers molt before they migrate and typically are in adult-like plumages by the middle of October. It would be highly unusual to ever see one with anything resembling a juvenile plumage in this time of year or even mm -hmm. in the middle of the winter. But yellow-bellied sapsuckers do sometimes a partial molt, sometimes virtually no molt at all before their first spring. And so they retain juvenile feathers and a lot of their juvenile appearance throughout their first winter. So the fact this bird had a red nape like a red nape sapsucker and still had uh, juvenile plumages indicating that it had some yellow-bellied parentage, I presume that it was likely a yellow-bellied red-naped hybrid. Uh, so I sent the photos off to Steve Schunk, who authored the Peterson Reference Guide to Woodpeckers. He looked at the photos and sent me a nice note back saying, I think you're right. It's the only explanation I can come up with for the appearance of this bird. So in that case, molt is is really interesting. Yes, I can, I, I always get this mixed up, but there's an issue with uh, with our golden plovers and, and molt too. What, what do you remember the story? Something about uh, the the Americans molt early. Uh, I, I I forget. I think, I think it's Americans molt early, and then um, and. Pacifics retain retain their juvenile plumage longer. Yeah, I think that might be it. So I think if you see a juvenile in the fall, you you can that's one of the one of the ways you can help differentiate them. Yeah. Okay, Dave, uh, you wrote a book recently. Uh, you just published uh, 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 the ABA, uh, uh, what used to be called Lane Guides. I don't know if they're called that anymore. The ABA Guide uh, to the Birds of Oregon, Bird Finding Guide to Oregon. I, I had a, an old green birding guide to Oregon, so this must have replaced that. Uh, well, these are kind and... of a new, it's a new series. It's not really designed as a bird finding guide per se. Uh, oh. The Lane series was a, a series published by ABA. And the focal point was that was for people who were traveling specifically to new areas where they had target lists of species, people like right. maybe more like you and I as birders. Mm -hmm. And um, this series is actually more geared to people who maybe just getting started at birding, maybe visiting oh. a place and want to look at birds more casually than say you or I or some of the people we run with would. Okay. And so they're, they're photo guides. Um, all the photography, or virtually all the photography, was done by Brian Small, who lives down okay. in Los Angeles. Um, he's, yeah, his dad, Arnold Small, was one of the earlier early movers and shakers in ABA and, uh, and really into photography. And Brian didn't uh, fall far from the tree. And so he, uh, he's the it's a Scott and Nick's Publishing out of New York contract with ABA to produce a series of books and they want to do one for all 50 states and the more populated provinces in Canada. 
Uh, I don't know if any of the Canadian guides have been released yet. I know there's one for Ontario in the works, and somebody contacted me at one point looking for a potential author for a guide for the birds of British Columbia. And I think there's been 16, maybe 17 of the statewide guides done. Uh, they're limited in scope to about 300 of the most expected birds you might find in that state. Okay. Oregon has, uh, at this point, about 540 to 550 species total have occurred in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And my book the, was limited to, I think it was 308 species we ended up with. So it's birds that somebody visiting the state or somebody who's a fairly casual birder can expect to see. Um, things like boreal owl, which you have to do a death march up into the mountains to find at a certain time of year are not in the in the book pelagic birds that you know you have to go miles offshore in hopes to see like a murphy's petrel you know are not in the book okay um, so is but, this a more of a bird identification book or is it more of a where to find book or um it's a combination of the two out? one i uh there's i had the opportunity to look at several of these guides and appropriated a couple of really good ideas for that i saw in other books one of my favorites is what's called the birding year, and it goes through month by month through the calendar where in your particular state would you recommend somebody go. So in, okay. in Oregon's case, if you're going to be in July, you want to go up into the mountains. You know, fall migration really hasn't sure. started. Um, there's more, more, more moisture up in the mountains. Birds tend to breed a little later, so you get a lot of active juvenile birds on the landscape. Uh, during the winter months, you know, go to the valley refuges and look at geese and ducks. And uh, in May, try to make a trip to Malheur Refuge, uh, one of the desert oases, you know, southeastern Oregon. So give people who may not know people or be intuitively inclined to figure out where to go. And most new birders, that's a challenge. Well, where do I go? What's my best plan of attack for given that it's April 25th? Where should I be going birding today? Kind of give people ideas for that. Um, there's photos of every species, usually males and females or adult and immatures as, a, as is appropriate. Um, and then a description of each bird, some basic ID points. Um, I tried to interject a lot of habits and things that I notify, notice about birds, how they fly, how they feed, little pointers that can help might people have, people have light going, oh yeah, that's exactly what I saw describing you know things like dowagers feeding like sewing machines or sure. the fact that turkey vultures you know when they're soaring tend to rock and hold their wings at a slight dihedral uh, unlike most hawks and other soaring birds it sounds like a terrific resource for uh, uh, all but the more advanced birders and probably the more advanced birders would learn something too uh, so it sounds like a great resource I'll, I'll make sure i put a link to in the podcast notes is the best place to buy that books like beautyo books or um you can get it through beautyo books you can get them online obviously uh nonprofits like aba at this point in the game need all the support we can get um, for sure and give them so um that would be my first recommendation if you can order it through beautyo books you may be able to find it a little, little less uh, a little uh cheaper online but um jeff bezos probably has plenty of money so yeah we i can suspect help he, i suspect he's bit. doing okay <laughs> i think yeah. he'll, Good. he'll muddle through yes so for listeners who don't know beautyo books is the bookstore affiliated with the american birding association if you just exactly. uh google right. aba bookstore or beautyo books you'll find that 
One of, a, a, kind of a funny story, when I first started out on this project, it, the first challenge I had was to kind of step out of my own skin and my own level of interest and think like somebody who was brand new to brewery. What, what do they need to know? What, if, I, if I'm preaching to my, if I'm writing the book for myself as an audience, it would have been an utter failure. But, uh, and it took a little bit of work to get myself to the point where I could just kind of operate in that mental space of who am I, who's the audience here? And, um, and I, I was really pleased with the way it turned out. I've got some great feedback, um, both with online reviews and, and just people who have bought the books for friends and family and relatives who they thought or kids that they thought might be interested that just think it's wonderful. So uh, I'm really happy the way it turned out. Well, I bet you are. It sounds like a great resource. I will make sure uh, I tell any of my uh, uh, birding friends. I bet it's a book that even if you're not from Oregon, if you're from Washington or Northern California, I bet a really lot of the the principles hold up uh, outside the uh, outside the you know borders of Oregon. Yeah, I mean it's. I mean a lot. You know, a lot of what's in there would certainly applies to Western Washington and Northwestern California because you're looking at for the most part the same suite of birds that occurs in all sure. those areas. Sure. Very neat. Very neat. Uh, so, David, one of the other unique things about you is that you are a birding couple or half of a birding couple. Uh, Shaneen is a top ABA birder, and you certainly have a reputation as a superb birder. What's it like to be a, a, a couple who both are super passionate and skilled birders? Well, the thing that's been great for us is uh, we have very similar levels of interest. We tend to bird at the same speed. Um, which is important because, you know, if you have one person that's just a listing maniac, go, go, go 100 miles an hour, and the other person wants to stop and take photos of the molt limits of a first spring western tanager, um, it doesn't take very long before the other half of the party is a mile down the beach looking at something. <laughs> you have to go on a scavenger hunt to find them. Uh, and I, I, I joke about Shaneen and I, we, we tend to bird in parallel because she's interested in dragonflies and butterflies and I like butterflies a little bit, but it's it's not my thing on the level it is for her. So we actually will go birding together and be together, but not necessarily together all the time. And and it works, you know, she'll be off taking photos of of butterflies and dragonflies while I'm taking pictures of molt limits on the Western Tanager. So and everybody's happy. Are you saying she's a more well-rounded naturalist than you are, David? Um, no, because she doesn't know trees at all, and I know them really well. She's, what's this tree? And she'll refer to a pine tree. No, that's a fir. No, that's a spruce. That's a cedar. <laughs> so, okay, okay. I so couldn't get one all, on you there. We all have we have all have our our side our side hobbies. But <laughs> well, you know, I, I have gotten into but I mean, there's lots of butterflies I can identify. I'm not into dragonflies so much. They're way too challenging they all look alike to me and you have to you know look at their reproductive parts in some cases to figure out what species they are it's i don't need a mo I'm not interested in anything i need a microscope to identify or yeah, really glass. really yeah dragonflies have been they are cool i mean they are just oh, cool you definitely. see them flying around and and they're super cool but i have to say uh, i mean i think i can identify two or three species maybe i can i can uh, you know eight spotted skimmer and green darner is about the extent of my knowledge yeah, there that's that's pretty much and i'm fine keeping it too. that way pretty much that's why i have shawnee and she's my reference book what's that 
My, if all goes well, my next guest is going to be Dennis Paulson. I think I have him set up to talk with next week. So talk about the dragonfly uh, expert of North America yeah. if, and not anything. So uh, I'm hoping I learn a little bit about dragonflies when I talk to him. Yeah. You probably learn more than you need to, more than yeah, you'll probably. able to uh, assimilate. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. That's usually what happens to me. But, but no, Shawnee, now we, we really have, a, we have a lot of laughs. Um, you know, the one thing about us is, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting. So often in the birding world, it's, you know, the male, there's, there's definitely a, a little bit of a patriarchy there. And the male half of, half of the equation usually gets more credit and uh, is assumed to be the better birder. But Shawnee is, you know, she's kind of like Cher or Madonna with one name. You just say it and people know who she is. And um, yeah. the, the real fun thing with being with her is that, she's opened doors and opportunities for me that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise, you know, getting to go and be a leader at the Rio Grande festival, getting to know people in, in the ABA hierarchy where when they, when it came time to look for somebody to author this book, you know, look to me first, as opposed to, you know, any number of other people they might've considered. Yeah. Sometimes it's a, it's nice to have a celebrity as a spouse, I bet. Now, if she spots a Swainson's hawk flying over the yard while I'm sitting in here doing this podcast, I'll be annoyed. But yeah, well, she said you know, that you could do editing, though. So if we needed to take a quick break for me to run outside, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. If you need to run outside, you do just that, and I can I can splice it right back in. I try to keep these pretty real and not too heavily edited. I think they're better that way. Uh, but in, a, in case of an emergency like that, I could certainly make do. <laughs> You can have you can have a bird emergency now and again. Though she hasn't, yes. I think she's mostly working in the garden, so she's not looking up that much. I'm yeah. safe. <laughs> you think you're okay? You don't want her to get another blocking bird on you no, while you're talking no. to me. That would be really that would be really rough. We did get our first cliff swallow for our yard this morning, which was kind of oh, cool. Wow. Okay. I don't think of that as. I mean, depends whether you live where where there's some. Uh, some breeding spots. Uh, Dave, do you have uh, uh, bucket list things that you want to do or what's down the road? Assuming that the ability to uh, bird where and when you want uh, returns, uh, who knows when that will be. Uh, do you have things someday. that you really, do you have things that you really want to do or hoping to, What what's on your wish list? Um, you know, I, I guess the, the main interest for me would be uh, doing more birding in the, the American tropics uh, particularly Mexico, Central America. Um, we did make one trip to Mexico, our honeymoon trip. We did a two-week trip to Oaxaca and Chiapas mm. in 2016 or 17 uh, that included going to El Triunfo and getting to see horned guans and a bunch of other really cool stuff. So um, I'd li definitely like to do more of that. Uh, I'd like to get to Asia to, to see... Uh, a lot of the Asian shorebirds, particularly spoon-billed sandpiper, while they're still extant. Um, other than that, I don't have a lot of big There's so many places, you know, just in the U.S. that I've never been. I mean, or that I've been to and I just like to go back to and spend more time. I tend to, I, years and years ago, realized that I was probably not going to have either the discretionary time or the discretionary income to to play the listing game at the highest level. So, that's not really a driving force for me anymore. I still will chase, you know, any new bird for Oregon or a new ABA area lifer if it's not too far away, like the Siberian Ex Center this 
this winter up in Woodland, Washington. Hasn't but, that been quite a is that I don't think it's still around, but it's stuck for a long time. Yeah, that was the great. last I think last sighting was on the twenty fifth of May, uh, March. Yeah, it so. was a it was a beautiful bird. God, I I got down. I spent I told you I spent a month in Texas, uh, and you know the the laugh was about a week and a half before I was set to go to Texas. A forktail flycatcher showed up in Texas. Just, oh, why did it have to come? Because they're sort of notorious for not sticking in a place very long. Uh, and so I waited and waited, waited, and they kept showing up day after day after day. And I got there. And so the next morning, I go racing off to see this flycatcher. And I get there, and I forgot my binos. They were back <laughs> at the house. And so I go, it's 30 minutes. I'm racing back to the house. I look around my scope, can't see it. Racing back, I get back. I've got my binos. I kind of like, and waited three and a half hours later. The bird showed up. I got it. It was super happy two friends bruce labar and ken brown came down a couple days later to spend a week birding with me and we get out then and so we get it and i had and then they stuck around and stuck around and stuck around and i let a I let a group of uh 10 local birders came down for the last week in texas uh and the last day the bird was seen was the day before the group got there <laughs> but uh and then uh the X center showed up like a week before i was coming home uh and I said, oh, gosh, and bomber, it'll never stick around. But it did, and I got down and got that, too. Yeah. So I've been lucky with birds hanging for me this winter. Yeah, that that's, can be really stressful. I mean, that, the funniest thing that ever happened to me like that uh, was, well, two things. The first was we were on a cruise ship doing a reposition cruise off of Oregon back in the, I think it was 2005 or 2006 in the fall. And uh, one of the guys, I mean, the internet, I think, to get on the internet, there was like 75 cents a minute or something on the, on the cruise ship. So none of us were checking our email or any of that. But one of the guys had gone to see what what had been seen in Oregon while we were offshore because it was, you know, prime of fall shorebird sure. migration. And he came back to the group at dinner. He says, well, there's a bird in Oregon right now that all of us need for our state list. And this, and this group included, you know, Owen Schmidt and Jeff Gilligan and you know, all the top listers from Big lister, Oregon. Sure. Basically. <laughs> so and we're all like, and, and I think one of us guessed right away, wood sandpiper, which is what it was. It was a wood sandpiper. that was a Fern Ridge Reservoir. And it, it ended up sticking around and, and uh, we got home in time to go see it. But, but, um, and then a few years later, I was Steve Malodinoff and I were birding over in Eastern Washington, went over there for fall migration. And we had just had, just a phenomenal trip and, and we we're just getting basically just getting started and the first morning we went to wash tuck and i don't know if you've been over there to the little park uh, many times sure and uh we walk into the park and the, essentially the first bird we looked at was an american red start and then about 10 minutes later i found what was at the time washington's second record of uh, bell's vireo Ooh. which you know phenomenal rarity and you know we're steve and our talking like you know that's going to be like we're regional editors of North American birds at the time. I said, yeah, that's going to be one of the, the top rare birds, of the, if not the top rare bird of the fall. And it was, turned out it wasn't even the best bird seen that day because um, Mike Denny found the variegated flycatcher that was at, at um, <laughs> Windust Park. Right. Uh, so you were, did you get that too? Well, Steve and I were staying, we were staying in Othello and mm -hmm. so we got up the next morning and we got over there and we were the first ones there and ended up refining it fairly quickly. And nice. And uh, so we got to see that, but then it only stuck around that one more day. And then a bunch of people showed up the next day and 
I remember yeah. I chased that too late. Yeah, there was a real swarm showed up the following day, and they all uh, were disappointed. That's a, that Shaneen and I weren't together then. She was mm-hmm. she was with her sister's family doing something at Black okay. Butte, I think, and near Bend, and she caught a ride up with one of the Bend burrs on that that Monday and, and didn't see it. And uh, so I I tease her about that one every once in a while. But she's seen I don't know she's over eight hundred for I know she's got a fabulous six fifty so. It's good to have one that I can gloat about. Yeah, it's good. Got to have something on your partner. Yeah, yeah I think I have two everything. birds that she hasn't seen in the aviator, and that's Mexican violet ear and and uh, and the, the flycatch, variegated flycatcher, and that's it. They're, they're good ones. Yeah, they're they're really good ones. So you mentioned your time as a reviewer, a reviewer, the uh, compiler, or I'm not sure what you called it for uh, Amer- American birding. Uh, what was that like? That seems like a tremendous job, a lot of work. Um, it was, well, it, it was at the, in the time, during the time that I was a regional editor, it was called North American Birds. It started out right. as bird lore back in 53 or 55 or something like that, and then became American Birds for a long, long time. And then for a mm-hmm. while was field notes. And then it eventually morphed into North American birds, which, okay. um, and it got passed around a little bit from organization to organization. Um, and then it became the property of ABA, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, maybe now. And um, funding for it has always been a challenge and, and it's, it's kind of dense stuff unless you're really into such things. So it never had a, a huge subscriber list. Um, but, um, I was a regional editor, co-regional editor with Steve for Oregon and Washington, and then he retired, and I became kind of the senior regional editor. I work with Brad Wagner, who I know you know. Oh yes. Um, Doug Schoenwald worked with us for a while, and then Ryan Merrill worked with us for a while, um, mm-hmm. doing the pelagic portion of it. Okay. And it it is a lot of work. The main thing is you just have to follow all the local listservs and kind of and and have access to all the the various reporting channels and early on it wasn't so bad because Oregon birders online and and in Oregon and tweeters up in Washington were essentially where everybody reported their unusual finds well but then that be, started becoming a lot more um, colloquial and you know the, these list serves for different subregions of each state started popping up and then eBird really took off. And at the point that eBird started to take off, um, there were two problems. One, um, you had real time reporting of all the rarities, um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, was archived and easily searchable and accessible with photos and, you know, detailed descriptions of the bird. It was, and those reports were vetted, whereas reports on the local listserv, were not vetted in any way or right. reviewed by anyone. So, you know, I could say, you know, I, yeah, I had a crested care care fly over my house and, you know, no photos, no, no description of it. And people could take that for what it's worth. But, um, so, you know, at the point people started actively using eBird, a lot of them stopped reporting birds to their local listservs. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, at this point, I'm not, I don't even subscribe to, to O-ball anymore just because I found myself getting into too many kind of inane arguments and discussions and and wasting too much time surfing through stuff that really wasn't <laughs> in the end that interesting to me. Um, so, and I was, you know, at that point 
had was an eBird reviewer as well. So I was doing that. But during that time, I, I kept a lot of notes and I kept kind of a running just uh, file word document that I would add in interesting sightings and, you know, dates and places and who saw it and fo- mm-hmm. you know, collect photos if there were good ones and, and interact with the people reporting these birds to verify, you know, that that's exactly what they saw or that they had some, you know, reasonable proof or that that's oh. what they saw. Reason and you should believe the, them. Yes. And at the end of the season, you craft a report and that used to take, I would probably each seasonal report, I would probably just in writing time would end up being probably 15 to 20 hours. I can believe that. You know, I'd spend it, you know, weekend. Um, it was, it was not that hard in the winter months when the weather was lousy, but boy, you know, I was, I could really figure out lots of reasons to procrastinate, procrastinate during spring and fall migration or, you know, the height of the summer when I wanted to be birding up in the mountains. Yeah, very good. And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the eBird reviewer uh, topic. I've, I've talked to a number of eBird reviewers, but thank you so much for your work doing that. I, I have the utmost respect for eBird reviewers. All you do is get grief and and yet it's such a useful function. I have to say, I always feel so grateful when I get feedback from an eBird review because it's usually so helpful. I mean, I learn something. I make mistakes. I mean, we all make mistakes. And having an eBird reviewer question you, and it, it helps you think. It makes you better. I think that's terrific. But I think some people maybe don't have that attitude. Well, I, I think for me, I I, uh, I went into it with the the idea that I don't, I don't. I want people to perceive me as a teacher and not as an expert. Uh, presumably, anybody who is an eBird reviewer is an expert. I shouldn't have to tell anybody, you know, or make the effort to tell anybody, "Hey, I know more than you do." Um, nobody responds well to that. So, anytime I have a query for somebody, I try to uh, bracket that and introduce that with the common knowledge you know, kind of general consensus knowledge about that bird. Here's what we as a, as a Royal, we know about this bird. It, you know, arrives at this date. Um, it's typically, you know, whether, you know, maybe it's a fall, it's typically juveniles at this season or some piece of information that, that doesn't line up with that person's sighting, but gives right. them an idea. Like they come away knowing, Oh, here's what I should be looking for. These are the ID field, you know, the critical field marks are this. They may have made mention of something that's not necessarily a reliable field mark, like the head sheen on a on a on a male adult male lesser or greater scop. Mm-hmm. Um, iridescent colors typically aren't useful as field marks because they change really depending on lighting. To, yeah, depends. Whereas what the other more like. rigid structural aspects of the bird are are that you can easily discern in the field are far more reliable. So I try to. Always make sure that whoever I'm interacting with is hopefully if they assimilate what I tell them, they're coming away with more knowledge than they had when we started. And I've over the years, I can be very opinionated and obnoxious and have annoyed more than one person in the birding community over time. Um, but I have to say that in all of my time reviewing for eBird, I have not had one what I would call negative interaction where somebody was really, really upset with me. And I think it's because I go out of my way to not 
always act on my usual instincts and <laughs> just say, no, you're wrong. That's, no, that's... you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I try not to do that too often. But, yeah. but uh, no, I, it, it, if I think if you give people information, um, everybody, the way I look at it, every user of eBird wants the information in the database to be as accurate as possible. None of us want to be chasing ghosts and misidentified birds. We want information that's reliable. From the lowest skilled person to the highest skilled reviewer, we all want that out of the, out of the database. So that's, that's what I'm working to achieve. That and helping the people who are using it to become better observers, to become better contributors, and to make less mistakes. And that'll make my job easier. And go toward that end result, you know, that end goal of having a more accurate database. And I think if you, if you share that with people, sometimes I just say that, you know, our goal is this, and this is all we're trying to do. You can count whatever you want on your list that, you know, nothing's going to disappear from your checklist. Nothing's going to disappear from your life list because we don't put it in the public database. But um, I hope you understand that we, we want you when you go out to go birding, if you're chasing down a report of species X, that species X is actually seen at that place. And it wasn't some common bird that somebody screwed up the ID on. So and I think people, I, they appreciate that. And if they come away with a little extra knowledge, it's, it's kind of the price, kind of the price they pay of, or the, or the, the, the benefit, the benefit they say, pay of, for participating. Yes. Yeah. That's the benefit they get in exchange for somebody saying, well, you might not have gotten that one right. Or the benefit they get for entering the data and being a citizen scientist. Yeah, so yeah, it's really... And, and I always thank people. Hey, you know, it's great. And I've had some great interactions with people. And I see them in, you know, if you're in a, if you're reviewing at a county level, in most counties, particularly a place mm -hmm. like where we live, our county's not that big. You know, we all end up seeing each other at some point out out in the field at, at the, the local hotspots. And when you run into those people, you want to, you want, I would hope that they see me as, oh, hey, you're that guy that's eBird reviewer. Hey, I really appreciate this nugget. That really helped me on identifying these birds and, you know, separating greater and lesser yellow legs in the future. And, yeah. you know, that's, it, that has it's value. It's almost, almost uniformly helpful. So I really appreciate the work that you guys do. I uh, wish I was good enough to participate, but I, I really appreciate the work that uh, eBird no reviewers you don't. do. <laughs> uh, uh, I appreciate <laughs> I wish I was Care good enough. I didn't, I didn't say I wish I was, I wish I was participating. I said, yeah. I wish I was good enough to participate. Yeah. <laughs> There's a difference there, you know, there's uh, a difference. Well, you'd, anyway. you'd be amazed. You know, I mean, I don't think, I mean, I think, I think it's you know, people probably overestimate the amount of knowledge you have to have to be a quality eBird reviewer. A lot of the information you can just look up. Um, you can look at, you know, photos and compare photos to stuff and guides, or you can, you know, pull up, do a, a date search and a, a species map for a month and see, you know, is this bird here? Look at the reports that are accepted. Does it show up at this time? And, and uh, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a great learning tool. And there's lots of information there that I'm not sure how much people go looking for. But, I mean, I have questions all the time that I go and I'll pull up a, an eBird an e map uh, by month. Mm -hmm. Shawnee does the same to to get questions answered that because it's not all information that's just magically stored in our head or that we always remember. Yeah, the bar charts are a wonderful tool on eBird. I I just love those. Uh, you know, you can yeah. do a bar chart for your yard now. Yeah, you can do a bar chart a for any site. Yeah, 
Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I, I live in a condo, so I, I was like, what is my yard? I can see a long ways from my condo. Whatever windows, you can but... see from standing in your house or in your yard is that's fair, fair, game, huh? fair play. Okay. I can see a long ways. I should have a good that's list good. if I start keeping it. <laughs> anyway, Dave, thank you so much for being on. I wanted to kind of wrap up by asking you if if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way to, to contact Dave Irons? Uh, my email address is probably the easiest way, and that is L-L-S-D-I-R-O-N-S at MSN.com. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm also very easy to find on Facebook if you're a burger. You just look, look Dave Irons, Beaverton, Oregon, and the guy with all the bird stuff. I'm, I'm members of multiple bird uh, ID discussion groups on Facebook and and. Uh, there's a song sparrow group, a fox sparrow group, a junko group. Uh, what's this bird group? <laughs> North American warblers, North American sparrows. There's a whole bunch of them that, that I participate in. And it's fun. It's it's a great opportunity to, to share knowledge and, and pass forward what I've learned from somebody else. Um, one of the things I, I laugh about when I when I meet, you know, people who know my name or, you know, Shawnee and know, you know, they know our names. And we're like rock stars to them in the birding world. And it's just comical. If, have you ever seen the movie Bull Durham with uh, Kevin Costner and I Tim have. Robbins? I always laugh at the scene when Tim Robbins' dad is coming to to uh, to uh, see him pitch, and he's all nervous about. <laughs> Kevin Costner gives a speech. Well, you know he's as full as full of s as anybody, and I kind of say that to people. You know, I'm you know I'm just a regular guy. I've ninety nine percent of what I know about birds I learned from somebody else, not from. You know, it's not original information that I uh, happen to figure out all on my own. Yeah, I think all of us feel that way. One of the reasons I like doing this podcast is first, I get to talk to really interesting people about something I love, birding, uh, but also because it gives, it, it's a little bit of giving back. You know, people learn something I like to hear. So, uh, it, you know, it's just a, we all have our little ways to, to contribute and lots of ways to uh to uh, drink from the fountain of uh, kindness and information that's out there with other birders. So it's really nice. David, thank you for being on my, my podcast today. I appreciate it. You've been a really fascinating guest. Uh, and I encourage everyone to go out and get your new book. Uh, the title of the book again, Dave, is? It's uh, ADA Guide to the Birds of Oregon. Very good. Buy a book of David. Support him. Uh, and uh, thanks so much. I uh, appreciate you being a guest today. Take care now. Thanks for the invitation. Bye-bye. Well, that wraps up the Bird Dinner Podcast, episode number 58 with Dave Irons. Stay tuned for future episodes. As I said, I'm hoping Dennis Paulson will be my guest on the next uh, podcast episode. He's going to be soon, if not the next one. It'll be coming up soon. I'm really looking forward to that. In the meantime, take Dave's advice. Get out. Work on your yard list. Learn some things by just careful observation of the easy things you can find close to home. Stay safe. And until next time, good birding, good day.